Welcome to the Lake Point Church Weekend Messages Podcast. Thanks for joining us to hear the latest sermons happening at our church. We pray that God speaks to you in a timely way through this message. And if you're encouraged by this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and share it to help get the word out. You can find more digital content to feed your faith and our other podcasts by visiting lakepoint.church/digital. Now, let's tune into the message for today. Well, hey, Lake Point family, a couple weeks ago, we had the incredible honor of bringing in a former long distance mentor of mine, and people liked him so much that we just had to have him back. Uh, what I heard from you was that he was very folksy, very likable, and most importantly, very biblical. And so Lake Point family, will you please put your hands together and give a warm welcome to my friend and our favorite Kentuckian, Dave Stone. Well, thank you. It is great to be back at Lake Point, and I made so many new friends a few weeks ago when I was here, and I found Lake Point to be a real place of joy. Now, I am from Kentucky, but I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and of course, Josh grew up right next to Cincinnati, Ohio, so I'm just telling you, the Super Bowl was tough on both of us, and he and I are both in grief recovery counseling. So be gentle with this, okay? Uh, everybody has been so nice to me here except for one guy. There's one guy. He's not in your row. Don't worry. Uh, he was giving me a hard time last time I was here uh, because I was from Kentucky, and he looked down. Oh, I see you're wearing shoes. Oh, oh never heard that one. Uh, uh, and then he started making fun of our zoo that we have. And, you know, you can make fun of a, a lot, but really our zoo is, is pretty cool in, in Kentucky. And I, I said, now, he said, oh, no, don't get upset. He said, I'm just saying that your zoo there in Kentucky is very different than the zoo that we have here in Dallas. I said, well, how is it different? He said, well, for instance, he said, on each cage here in Dallas, we have the name of the animal in English, and then next to it, we have the name of the animal in Latin. I went, whoa, Wow. I said, well, what do we have in Kentucky? He said, on each cage, you have the name of the animal in English, and then next to it, you have a recipe. <laughs> yeah. So there's that, you know. I like the fact that you guys have a lot of fun around here. I am of the mindset, Jesus said in John 10, 10, he said, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly or have it to the fullest. And I am of the mindset that Christians should be having more fun than anyone else because our past is forgiven, our future is settled, and so we should be enjoying the present. And that joy should be evident. Now, last week, uh, Josh began a brand new series. Pastor Josh did a great job of talking about 1 Corinthians as we open, open this up. If you have your Bible and you want to turn to 1 Corinthians, feel free to go there, and I will, I will meet you there in just a minute. But we're calling this series Following Jesus in a Jacked-Up Church. Because when Paul was on his second missionary journey, he spent a year and a half in Corinth, and that place was jacked up. And he, he stayed there significantly longer than he had any place else. He stayed there for a year and a half, and he planted this jacked-up church in Corinth. And as Josh mentioned, immorality was everywhere, even in their religious gatherings. It was Vegas and New York City and Amsterdam all rolled into one. But Paul 
shared the gospel. He talked about the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there were people who, who responded. And those who responded to that invitation, they became the nucleus of the Corinth church, a beacon of hope into a sex-saturated society. But over time, the world was getting into the church more than the church was getting into the world. And after Paul has been gone for three years, he starts getting disturbing reports about this church that he planted. So Paul is trying to give some guidance to the Corinthian Christians so that they can be distinctive, so that as believers, they can stand out rather than blending in. So we pick it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, why would Paul say that the cross is, is foolishness? That doesn't seem to make sense. Well, the word foolish or foolishness, either one will occur six times in the next nine verses. And every single time that it's said, Paul is saying it with sarcasm. He is he's building a case for us to understand. The word foolish comes from the root word that means moron. That's where we get it. Now, I heard moron a whole lot when I was in middle school. I don't know about you. I remember when I was in seventh grade, I came home, I had my report card, showed it to my dad. I had four Fs and one C. He said, how do you explain that, boy? I said, well, I guess I spent too much time on that one class. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I was not the sharpest spoon in the, in the drawer. I mean, knife, knife in the drawer, sorry. I'm, I'm proving my point. But have you, have you ever noticed that sometimes people look foolish, but yet they really, there really is wisdom behind it? Think about in a sporting event where you're watching the first half and you question the game plan of the coach, but eventually toward the end of the game, what appeared foolish was actually wise. There was a rhyme and reason to it all along. And that's what we're going to discover in this, in this very next section here in 1 Corinthians. And so we've entitled this sermon, The Foolish, Wise, Weak, and Strong Cross. Now, while that phrase may seem contradictory, every single one of those words is true. So think about it like an, an expert jeweler looking at a diamond and how they look at it from a variety of different angles and different perspectives. And, and that's what we want to do. We want to look at the cross that way today. We want to just look at it from a lot of different viewpoints. And the Corinthians are going to have to go through three transitions that seem very counterintuitive to them when it comes to the cross. Here's the first one. Foolishness can become wisdom. Foolishness can become wisdom. Look at verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So Paul wrote nearly half the books in the New Testament, and yet here in 1 Corinthians is the only place where he goes in-depth on the topic of wisdom. And we think that we've made such technological advancements as a global society and as a nation, and we take pride in our wisdom. But the next few verses in our text, they seem to parallel with our own world today. I'll put this on the, on the big screen here. Look, look at this passage in verses 19 and 20. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? 
Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So let's keep that verse up there for a minute. Now, if you look at those verses too long, you're going to think that Paul is talking about what we've experienced the last 23 months with something called COVID. Because COVID has confounded the wisest doctors and the brightest immunologists. Look at these phrases. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Such a parallel for where we're living right now. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Within the context and the setting, Paul is not talking about COVID. Paul is talking about the cross. How the cross doesn't make sense to an unbeliever. They can't understand it. How it seems foolish, how it seems moronic is what he's saying. And yet God used the cross, the death of his son, to make the forgiveness of sins and the reality of salvation possible. You see... Paul is going to play up the foolishness of, of, of the cross to actually validate the wisdom of God because Paul knows who will be reading this letter in Corinth. It's people who grew up Jewish. And the Jews felt that dying on a cross was the lowest form of death and anyone who died that way was cursed. You say, well, why would they think that? Well, because the Bible itself says that. Back in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, in verses 22 and 23, it teaches that a man who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. So you would think, God, why did you choose to have Jesus hang on a tree if he's cursed? And all he is doing is, for thousands of years prior to the crucifixion, he is foreshadowing the redemption that the Messiah's death would make possible when he would be crucified on a wooden tree. Paul explains it all and, and ties it up for us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Paul is referring to this law. And, and what appears to be foolishness is actually God's wisdom. He is setting the stage thousands of years before with what he writes in Deuteronomy. Don't miss this. Jesus was cursed for us. He hung on a tree, on a cross, as a substitute for our sins. Jesus made seven different statements when he was on the cross. And most believe that his last statement that he made was the phrase, it is finished. Now, in the Greek language, that phrase is one word. It's the word tetelestai. And tetelestai, that one Greek word, is translated into three words. And so it is finished. Another translation for it is that Jesus is saying it is accomplished. But there's a third possible rendering of, of that phrase. And that was found in merchants' records in accounting circles. And so what would happen is you would buy a product and maybe you paid for it over time. And when you finally had finished paying for that product and you made all those payments, they'd kept a ledger of all that. At the bottom of that receipt, you know what they wrote? To Telestai. The third meaning is paid in full. And so maybe what Jesus is saying as his last words on the cross is, it's paid for. You say, what's paid for? my sin debt, your sin debt. And Jesus took care of it all. 
And he wiped it out, his substitutionary sacrifice upon that tree made it possible for you and, and your sins to be forgiven, for me and my sins to be forgiven. And if God can take Christ's suffering and Christ's death on the cross and bring salvation out of it, what good can he bring out of your suffering and your painful seasons of life? God never wastes a hurt. Look back at our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So foolishness can become wisdom. The second transition that the Corinthians were going to have to learn was that weakness can become strength. The gospel is stronger than any earthly power. Verse 27 the second half of it says, God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And again, the cross of Christ is a perfect example of that. You, you talk about weak. You, you are defenseless. You are dying a slow death by suffocation. Historian Bruce Shelley points out that Christianity is the only major religion to have at its, its central event the humiliation of its God. And dying on a cross seems foolish because at first glance, it's the ultimate in weakness. And earlier in this passage, Paul talks about how some people, they, they want proof. They, they say, hey, give us a sign. And usually that means show us some awesome display of, of power and then we'll believe. But God chose to show his strength through his sacrifice and through his submission. We, we talk about weakness at his death. But think even at his birth. It was a picture of weakness. The God of the universe stooped beneath the lowest roof in all of Bethlehem and humbled himself and came to earth as a tiny defenseless baby who would be dependent on others to care for him and to raise him. Now, we each have our own weaknesses and, and our own struggles. Sometimes our struggles are, are mental or, or emotional. Sometimes they're physical. And we may not have any say in them. Paul himself had struggles. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, he talks about having a, a thorn in the flesh. And he uses that terminology. We don't know exactly what this, this thorn was. Most theologians think that it was a, a physical ailment of some type. Perhaps it was malaria. Maybe it was poor eyesight that he struggled from. But Paul pleaded for God to remove this thorn, this, this weakness from him. But the Lord answered him in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, and said, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. But in our culture, we are not conditioned to admit our weaknesses. And we don't talk about our, our thorns in the flesh because it might, it might hurt our image. And, and there are some things we can change, and there are other things that are just out of our control, and we have no say in them. Sometimes when I, I speak at a, a conference or at a banquet, an administrative assistant from that place will reach out to me a couple of weeks before, and they'll talk about my travel plans or what hotel I might prefer, or maybe they'll say, do you have any food allergies? 
And just a few years ago, I, I discovered that I had determined a, uh, a dairy intolerance. So I'm, I'm lactose intolerant. So I always write that down. But my experience has been, they're really great at, at asking that question and, and taking that information. But they never pass it on to the person that's in charge of the meal. <laughs> I mean, it just happens. I don't, I don't know how it happens, but it happens all the time. And so I'll be sitting at a, at a banquet, and they'll bring food to me. And at that banquet, it will be, you know, something that is, is just filled with cheese all the way through it. And maybe it's macaroni and cheese or a glass of whole milk and buttermilk pie with a scoop of ice cream on top, right? Well, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But there was one exception. It was an event that was in Nashville. It was a dinner with about 70 people, and the hosts had brought in a Grammy Award winner to have a private concert for us after dinner. And this singer was, was seated like eight feet away from me. And the lady in charge of the meal was helping the servers deliver the entrees. And just after a young gal had, had placed a plate down in front of me, the lady in charge from across the table began yelling, no, 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 he can't have that. He's lactose intolerant. I mean, the whole place is looking around. Everybody is staring. It was terrible. People are whispering. You know, I thought there was something different about that guy. You know, <laughs> my face is beat red. Everyone is now gawking at me. Men, women, Grammy Award winners. They're all just looking at me, and I was so embarrassed. And even at my, at my own table on either side of me, I saw the people scoot their chairs over. <laughs> One of them was my wife. Uh, so we all have our struggles, all right? We all have our weaknesses. We have our thorn in the flesh that we prefer to keep quiet and private. And sometimes we can't change them. But our struggles go much deeper than our stomach. Our struggles can be found in our heart. And they are born out of our, our sinful nature and our poor choices when we seek to exalt self over our Savior. And we worry and we say to ourselves, well, what, what if another Christian, I mean, learned about my struggle with, with greed or gossip or anger or alcohol or pornography or pride? And we just try to keep it to ourselves. But pretending and being fake doesn't attract people to Christ. It certainly doesn't attract people to Lake Point. We do the body of Christ a disservice when we try to appear as if we have no struggles. And too many people in the church were wearing masks long before the pandemic ever came around. I spoke to someone a couple days ago who has been coming to Lake Point for a while, and I asked her, I said, so why did you come back? Why have you continued to return and she said, it's because I feel like the people are genuine. You see, when, when you are genuine, when you are real, when you are approachable, that attracts people to the gospel. Pastor and author 
Carl Kuhl talks about how Jesus' original intent for the church is that she would be a hospital for the broken, a haven for the hurting. And in his new book, Bloodstained Pews, he tells a story of back in World War II when the carnage of war broke out on D-Day. And two medics brought wounded soldiers into an empty nearby church there in Angleville, France. And they had laid them on the church pews because there was no other place in town that they could take them. And so they just laid the people out to treat them and to treat their wounds on the church pews. And when the war was over and the citizens in town came back to, to worship in their church again, they saw the blood-stained pews. And they had a decision to make. And they decided to preserve the stains rather than to remove them. And this is their explanation. It was to remind all who would come afterwards that this is the place where the hurting can come. This is the place where the wounded can heal. This is the place where the suffering are welcome. And that's what we want here at Lake Point. That should be a description of every church. It should be a safe place for those who are struggling and striving to allow the Lord to transform our weaknesses into strengths. So admit your weaknesses. Let God use it to his glory. It's part of your story. But if we're not careful, we can become more consumed with protecting our image rather than building his kingdom. If you want to act like you're perfect, you can go ahead and act like you're perfect. But I'm just telling you, nobody's believing it. Nobody's buying it. So instead, help your own spiritual and emotional health by seeking authentic community and confessing your struggles because we don't heal in isolation. We heal in community through honesty and accountability. God won't heal what you don't reveal. And when you share your struggles with a trusted Christian brother or sister, you are inviting cleansing and you are showing your de dependence on God. I love the way that Lecrae says it. He says, I'm, I'm not a Christian because I'm, I'm strong and have it all together. I'm a Christian because I'm weak and I need a Savior. Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. It says, For when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except... Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. And Paul is saying, without the Lord, I'm fearful. Without Christ, I, I am a basket case. And Paul might not have all of the answers to the unusual situations and, that surfaced in the church at Corinth in this decadent city, but he did know what was most important. And so that's what he preached. He preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul confesses to the church that when he first came with fear and trembling, that that forced him to, to be dependent on the Lord. Some of you, you're in some really difficult work settings and your coworkers are, are adversarial to the gospel and they ridicule your faith. And Satan wants you to enter the workplace with fear and trembling. But the Lord wants you to, to walk into that building or to join that Zoom call from your home knowing that you are not alone. Because if you are a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. 
And that's a game changer. And that leads us to the final transition that Christians must realize. Walking in the flesh can become relying on the Spirit. And when you became a Christ follower, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 tells us that, that your sins are forgiven and that the gift of the Holy Spirit replaces where those sins are. And the Holy Spirit is the most misunderstood part of the Trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And God the Spirit is just as equal with the others. And God the Spirit is, is what it is that the Bible tells us has the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. He could live anywhere he wants to. And yet he has chosen to take up residency and to live in your heart. That, that should change the way we approach each and every day. His power can transform on how we handle temptation, how it is that we share our faith. You and the Holy Spirit are always a majority. He is a comforter. He is a confidant. He is a power. He is a person. He is a presence. Verse 4 says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Paul is, is saying, hey, you got to get this. If you found anything impressive uh, about me, please realize that it had absolutely nothing to do with me. Paul is saying, if you were leaning in while I was speaking, it's because the Spirit of God softened your heart. It's not because of some public speaking class I, I took when I was in high school. He says, no, it's because the Spirit of God was working Look at verses 4 and 5 together. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might rest on men's wisdom, not, not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Don't put your complete trust in people or in pastors. We will disappoint you. Put your trust in the one who was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead. And the Lord's Spirit, the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you. And I have discovered that when I rely on the Spirit, that things are so different in my life. I am more willing to love and to serve others. My motives are pure. My, my actions reflect the Holy Spirit. But when I am walking in the flesh, my motivation for serving may be more for selfish reasons. Maybe I have strings attached. What I'm saying is I struggle with why I do what I do. Let me give you an example. Uh, a few months ago, my wife Beth and I, we were staying at a hotel in Houston. And that first night as we were leaving, I asked the gal at the front desk if, if we could get anything for her, bring her back anything. They didn't have a restaurant there, and, and we got in the habit of starting to do this. And the gal did not hesitate. She said, I'd like some chicken nuggets and a Frosty. I said, awesome. And then she went on and she said, and I like to dip my chicken nuggets in ranch dressing. I said, that's awesome, good. Well, we headed out, and it's always kind of fun for us. We enjoy it. We kind of turn it into uh, an adventure that we're on for the employees. We came back a little while later. We had the goods. We came back to the front desk, and I handed it to her. The first word she said to me, did you get the ranch dressing? I said, yeah, yeah, yes, ma'am, it, it's, it's in there. And she kind of grunted, thanks. And that was it. 
And Beth and I headed back to our room. We got talking about something else for a while. And then it popped in my mind. I said, hey, I said, that, that gal out front, she wasn't real appreciative, was she? And it was like a flip, a switch was flipped. And Beth said, oh, no, not, not at all. She didn't act surprised when we, we offered. She acted like she expected someone to, to buy her food. And I said, she made, she made no offer either before or after. And Beth said, yeah. And before she even mumbled her thanks, she wanted to know if we remembered her ranch dressing. Now, I, I don't know, I really don't know what we were expecting. I don't know if I was expecting her to walk us back to our room and say, you will never know. You will never know what your generous purchase of that pile of poultry, <laughs> coupled with that frozen chocolate dessert, you will never know what this means to me. In all of my time of working with weary travelers, no one has ever expressed such generosity and unselfishness. You must be Christ followers. Take me to the hotel pool and baptize me. I, I don't know what we were expecting, but it wasn't, did you get the ranch dressing? <laughs> and the more we analyzed her response or the lack thereof, the more frustrated we became. And I finally said, you know, if, if that's the gratitude that she shows, then I'm not going to offer to get her anything tomorrow night. No soup for you. <laughs> But then there was this pause, and there was this silence, and Beth said, you know, her response shouldn't determine our giving. And then she said, I, I mean, if it really is a gift of love, then we should give it to her whether she's appreciative or not. And she was right. What I'm saying is, if I only give when I think the recipient will be grateful, then I'm probably giving for the wrong reason. If I only serve to receive recognition, then most likely I'm walking in the flesh rather than relying on the spirit. If I only love when someone is going to love me back, that's truly not love. And we run into problems when we want to make our lo loving, giving, and serving contingent on how much appreciation or praise or notoriety we receive. Let's say that your company wants to get involved in uh, some service project. And they say, hey, we're going we're gonna to build a, a Habitat for Humanity home. And I want all of you all to volunteer some hours for that. If your first thought is, well, you know what? They better end up giving me a T-shirt. Because I want the world to know that I was out there serving for that thing. Or you start tithing to the church and you think, you know what? Now, God better start blessing me financially because that ain't chump change that I'm putting in the offering. Or you buy someone a Frosty and Chicken Nuggets. That person had better look me in the eyes and give me a, a heartfelt thank you. But aren't you grateful? that God didn't have any qualifiers or contingencies before he sent the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. I am relieved that even before we surrendered our lives to Christ, God had already made the decision to love us, regardless of our response. You talk about pure motives. We love because he first loved us. But I wonder at times if from God's perspective, if we seem ungrateful for his generosity, 
Hey, God, nice of you to live a perfect life and to pay for our sins on the cross and all. And, oh, yeah, and the eternal life thing, that's, that's good too. But, you know, I have been asking you for some time now for a good-paying job with health insurance, and I'm still waiting. And at times, our apathetic and selfish response to God's ultimate gift must sound to our Heavenly Father like, did you get the ranch dressing? When the proper response should be falling on our knees in worship and gratitude for what he did at the cross to say with the Apostle Paul, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It means that we start our day with the intention of letting the Spirit call the shots. And when he prompts us to do something, we are obedient, even when it takes us out of our comfort zone. And so we pray each day, God, intersect our path with someone, someone that we can bring one step closer to Jesus. Lord, help me to listen to those promptings, to listen to those urgings. Now, I have never had God speak to me in an audible voice. But I'll tell you this, each and every day, I sense the promptings of the Holy Spirit. That person looks like they are having a bad day. Maybe you could give them a word of encouragement. Dave, that, that, that person behind you in line is, is, is going to struggle to pay for those groceries. Why don't you discreetly slip some money to the cashier for their items and try and see if you can get out of there before the person even notices? This past week was Valentine's, and uh, my wife made some cookies for our next-door neighbors and, and for some family and friends, and she said, you know what I think we should do? She said, I think we should take some of these cookies over to that new family that moved in on, on the other side of the neighborhood uh, a few blocks away. And I said, oh, that would be, that'd be really cool. They lived there about a year, and we'd never driven over there. And so we, we went over to that house, and Beth went up to the door and knocked, and I kind of hung back a little bit, and she's standing there holding cookies. Dogs start barking, going crazy. They open the door very cautiously and kind of look out and say, what, what, what do you want? And she says, I, I've just got some, I got some Valentine's cookies that I made for you. We're, we're neighbors of yours three blocks away, and we've never got to meet you, never got to welcome you. For the next 10 minutes, they began to share how they had been mistreated by different people in our neighborhood. And I think we were the very first people to ever knock on their door in a year. And they kept saying, why, why would you do this? What, what prompted you to do this? They must ask that, the lady must ask that three times. And there will come a time in the future where we will be able to say to her, well, the Holy Spirit prompted us to do that. Didn't make sense to them. At first, it even seemed like foolishness. But God's wisdom just loves to work in and out of our lives and intersect us and cross our paths with other people. I don't know what the rest of that story will be, but I can't wait to tell it to you. Sometimes it's just as simple as taking some $2 cookies and making them and taking them to a neighbor. And it makes a change in their life. So we listen to the Spirit. Spend your day working in tandem with the Spirit. Consult Him for wisdom, for direction. You all are a team. He is your leader. 
Make yourself available. Try to rely on the Spirit rather than living in the flesh. Let me ask you a question. I know the Holy Spirit would never do this. But if he did, here's my question. If the Holy Spirit were to completely pull out of your life, would you even notice that he was gone? I mean, would it even stand out to you? Or has it become so common in your life to do things on your own that you never consult him, that you never let him lead you, that you're so independent that you're just going to do things on your own? Jesus Christ stayed on the cross because he wasn't walking in the flesh. He was living by the Spirit. He stayed there when he could have come down. I want to make certain you get this. Jesus put himself where I deserve to be so that someday I can be where I do not deserve to be. And his cross is the bridge that spans the gulf between my sin and God's throne. Some of you are acquainted with The Tonight Show and a guy by the name of Johnny Carson. Before there was Jimmy Fallon, before there was Conan O'Brien, before there was Jay Leno, there was a guy by the name of Johnny Carson. And he was the king of late-night TV for nearly three decades. His sense of humor and easygoing demeanor and his ability to interview celebrities were unparalleled in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And during that time, he, he had well-known evangelist Billy Graham on his program uh, several different times. But since Johnny Carson wasn't known as a real spiritual man, Carson always felt a little intimidated whenever he had Billy Graham on as a guest. And one night... Johnny was interviewing Billy Graham, and at one point, there was a lull in the conversation, and Carson, feeling a little awkward in the presence of this spiritual giant, tried to speak to our human depravity, and he, he referred back to Jesus being crucified, and then Johnny blurted this out. He said, you know, Billy, if, if Jesus Christ ever came back again, he said, you know, I bet we'd do him in again. And Billy Graham leaned forward in his chair and he locked eyes with Johnny Carson and he said, the Bible promises and predicts that Jesus will return someday. But the first time he came in love, the second time he will come in power. No one will do him in. So what I'm saying is we better be ready. And the first step is to put your trust in the one who died on a cross and then walked out of his own grave. That's why we preach Christ and him crucified, because he specializes in transformations just like he did on that Friday from a Sunday, just like from foolishness to wisdom, from weakness to strength, from walking in the flesh to relying on the spirit. And the cross reminds us that transformation is possible. God's grace is greater than man's disgrace. Our God specializes in letting yesterday end last night because only God can turn a mess into a message. Only God can turn a test into a testimony. Only God can turn a trial into a triumph. But you have to let him. You have to humble yourself and be willing to say, Lord, I surrender. I give myself to you. Will you let your spirit lead me each and every day? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, only you can take a cross, the Roman instrument of death, 
and transform it into the Christian's symbol of life. Lord, would you help us to be the type of church that is real, that is genuine, that doesn't wear masks? Would people see Jesus inside of us? And when they do, may they be drawn to him. It's in his powerful name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening today. For more biblical teaching and worship, join us for our church online live weekend services on Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. For more information about all the digital ministries of Lake Point, visit lakepoint.church/digital. Lake Point.